I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. Uh, Brittany and Nia are coming to you. We are recording this on April 12th. Releasing next week, April 19. I can't believe that means we'll almost be in May. We're flying through. And I, it's so funny because I still think that we're in February. (laughs) And so when people say stuff like, oh, well, Mother's Day right around the corner or something like that, it throws me off. (laughs) It's like, you know, when you forget what day of the week it is Mm -hmm. and you think that it's, I don't know. A Friday and it's a Monday or something like that. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have my pillbox telling me which day it was, I would never know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just feel like these months are blending into each other and going at such a rapid pace. Yes. How have you been the last week? What's been up? Anything new? Well, I got my second vaccine. What? what? Yeah. Um, and felt like crap for probably 36 hours and, um, slept and sat on my couch, laid on my couch all day. The girls were like, you're still here, mommy? (laughs) (laughs) Little shits. I I said, yes, I'm still here. They're like, okay, but um, Harper was so sweet. She went, I had a headache, and so she's gotten into the habit now of um, when I have a headache, she gets me a cold washcloth. Oh, Yeah. And then, can I get you anything else? Some water? That's so, very sweet. I know. So I felt very taken care of, and then on Sunday, I felt great. And now I'm just so excited, because in two weeks, full immunity. Woo-woo! And what about I know, I know. What about you? Oh gosh. Well, the the last week I also spent a good bit of time thinking about the the coming opening of life of things. Um and opening of life. Well, cuz I can leave my house again. <laughs> oh, opening up. Yeah. Opening okay. of life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh and one of my friends and I were talking about wanting to get some new clothes, just a little fresh, you know, kind of having our like our summer coming out. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And both of us have been hitting real snags. I've already shipped back three full orders of shit I just did not like. Oh no! And so she and I are texting back and forth, and she was like, "I feel like maybe we're just not the target audience for the brands we love." And I was like, "I think you might be right." She's like, "I, it's ready. I think we're ready to just like throw in the bag and go to Talbot's." Which she said as a joke, because Talbot's is like where my mom shopped when I was a kid. <laughs> totally. My mom shopped there, too. Okay, so fun fact, Talbot's is awesome. Is it awesome? <laughs> we then went on their website, and both of us made big orders. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> well, I mean, they're around for a reason, right? They've had some staying power. We did, I, for all of our listeners, I, I'm a 30-something, and so our boundary was no paisley or floral bottoms. We felt like that was an important stance to take in maintaining our youth. (laughs) In maintaining our youth. Man, you throw a middle part with that and nobody's going to question it. (laughs) 
And so far, one piece has showed up, and I fucking love it. So uh, shout out <gasps> to Telvix. So ex- I'm so excited for you. You think there'll be sponsors? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Talbots, you might not have hit into the millennial market yet. Let me help you. Well, I do think that that's such a rite of passage. There's certain um, stores that my mom used to shop at, like uh, Ann Taylor or... Um, <laughs> Which I also love. <laughs> I know! I was just going to say, who I fucking love. Or um, my mom never actually shopped at this store, but I would always see it in the mall and i was like oh that's like an older woman store but like j jill oh yeah Mm -hmm. cute stuff Mm -hmm. so fucking cute yep and now i'm getting catalogs um oh gabriel makes fun of me all the time for getting um like land's end catalogs uh you love them right (laughs) yes first off everything should be embroidered with my initials i think that just goes without saying (laughs) And then I want my entire family to be able to match. And you can only exactly. do that at Land's End. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is so funny. Yeah, I do. Again, I think it's like this rite of passage when all of a sudden you start relating mm-hmm. to some of the things that you remember your mom doing. Yeah. My husband's almost entire wardrobe is from Duluth Trading Company. Yeah. Um, huh I, I joke that we should buy stock because he keeps them in business. Yeah. And so he also will buy me clothing from there, which I don't mind. But sometimes it goes a bit far. And he sent me this picture this past week of a Duluth. Are they overalls? No, they, they're going in the other direction. It's a Duluth Trading Company blazer. Oh. Like a suit it, jacket. Is it made out of that like rough material that the pants are made out of? <laughs> no idea i was like that is where i draw the line no you know it's like kind of like carhartt material (laughs) (laughs) i did see um because my husband also shops at duluth and um i did see they sent a catalog to us that um was for women it was just like a women's duluth catalog i love that this is like a new thing for you and not a weekly occurrence like it is at my house we get three different duluth catalogs every week are you serious? Yes. Men's, women's, and then random togetherness. I've only been in the store one time, and um, I'll never forget because Olive got lost in it. <laughs> and <laughs> you laugh, but she was bawling. I bet. And I come around the corner. I mean, it's a it's a big store, but it's not a big store. I'm like, it's just, it's one yeah. floor, and... Um, but you remember when you were a kid and it's just like it seems so big, mm-hmm. like those spaces, and you turn around and your mom's not there and you're just like you feel like you're all alone. And so I heard her crying and I was like, what is going on? And then one of the store um, salespeople had her and they're like, are you her mom? I know. So in 20 years, we're going to be hearing about Olive's first trip to Duluth as an adult where she finally starts adopting the clothes. She yes. <laughs> she talks about it all the time, um, about that's the store that I got uh, lost in. <laughs> so her so therapist will bring her there for immersion therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's good. Well, it was uh, a really beautiful weekend this weekend, and um, I'm glad that we all got to enjoy it before the snow hits. 
Yeah, what the fuck? Always. I can't. I just can't. I know. I'm so over it, but you can't really be over it until after Mother's Day. True. There's just no point. Mm -mm. You'll just be disappointed. Yeah. (laughs) I did get my first sunburn of the year out of the way, so that's good. Is that because you were working on your water feature? I was, yes. It was you the... and you... I've never met someone who loves a um, power, power washer, washer. I, as I much as you. love a power washer. I know. I was inside making lunch for us, and my husband started getting the power washer set up, and I start banging on the window. That's my job. <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> Hands off. <laughs> Well, that's good. So what are we talking about today? So we are, we're really taking a, a topic very much of the moment uh-huh. to discuss. Um, for those of you on fundraising Twitter, you have probably seen a recent dust up um, between one specific fundraising consultant and apparently the rest of the world. Um, but it, it all hinges around this dichotomy between donor-centric fundraising and community-centric fundraising. And we've talked a little bit about community-centric fundraising as like the answer to so many of these systemic issues in fundraising, but we haven't done a deeper dive. So I thought it would be helpful to kind of start there, talk about the the two models, why they're different, what we like about it, and then this specific issue that has been broiling for the last month. So... Let's start with the um, donor-centric fundraising. Right. And kind of what we've all been indoctrinated into. Yeah. I mean, that, it's kind of the traditional model, right? You um, put the donor at the center of it. Um, that means in all your communications with the donor, um, you'll do things like count how many times you say you in a letter because <laughs> you're right. talking about them and their their place in the world. It's all about what they are doing to change the world through your organization. It really is about ensuring that they are having an amazing experience. Um, and it, it and goes feel on. like part of it. Right. Right. Um, and it goes through all different types of fundraising, right? Like I would say the gala is a central tenant of donor-centric fundraising. Yep. Yep. I was talking to a reporter last week, actually. Very oh, exciting. Cool. And she works in podcasts but does not work in nonprofits. Okay. And so um her um that's her perspective she was coming th- from and she was asking about the nonprofit reframe and what we talk about and I kept saying stuff like well we've been trained as fundraisers. We've been trained as nonprofit staff. We've been trained. And then I realized because she hasn't worked in the sector that I had to clarify well I mean, sometimes it is, but a lot of it isn't actual trainings. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of how it's always been done or best practices or what we read about as best practices. And I feel as if donor-centric fundraising is like a foundation that we all have been quote-unquote trained in. Yeah. There are books named donor-centric fundraising. Right. right, Like it is such a big part of the way fundraising has happened historically that uh, going against it is causing um, a bit of a kerfuffle. I don't use right. that word enough, kerfuffle. I know. That's a good one. Thank you. Um, 
And so now there is kind of a, a new theory that has come out, or relatively new, that has been at least named. And community-centric fundraising, how long has that been out? I feel like the tenants of it have been brewing for five years or so, but the organization itself, community-centric fundraising itself, is really only in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I feel like it it is the solution that so many of us have been looking for, for without really knowing what we were looking for. Right? Like – I. I totally agree because, I mean, when we talk on this podcast about a lot of these issues that we've all faced, um, be it power dynamics, I mean, right there, when you're putting the donor first Mm -hmm. and you're putting all of their experience first before the benefits of the organization, before the values of the organization, before the morals, that, I mean, that is a the result of donor-centric fundraising. Right. And, and you know, when we also say that we've trained donors, it's because we continue to reinforce that. You know, we, we have created fundraising in a way that is meant to cater to the donors and their needs, and then they expect that from nonprofits in return. And so shifting away from donor-centric fundraising can be very scary because it's what we know. It's what we know works. It's what our donors know. And so any change is going to be scary, especially when we're talking about money. Mm-hmm. Money is what makes our programs happen. I get why it's scary. And we also know fundraising hasn't been working for us in our missions. Right. So this is a chance to really, to really make the changes that need to happen across the sector, not just in our programs, not just in our equity committee, but across nonprofits in all of our operations. So what is community-centric fundraising? Well, it basically takes it from being the donor at the center of the universe to the community. And some of those, the, their tenants, I understand why it can feel um, a little unattainable even because it gets rid of, again, some of these things that are so tried and true, like the Hunger Games. So instead of my organization competing with every other organization down our road, we see ourselves as true partners and really the community at the center of it being the most important thing, not my individual organization, not my programming, but our overall community. Right. And I feel like if you were to ask most people, they'd be like, of course, duh. (laughs) Yeah, this is about community. But when you get into the nuts and bolts, that's not how nonprofits have operated. No, definitely not. I mean – I can't tell you how many times that there's been a new funding opportunity that comes out in the community, and then when you hear which organizations got it, you're like, oh, of course they did. Yes. (laughs) And sometimes that is based in reality (laughs) of, like, they are not deserving. Uh, But (laughs) most of the time, it really is just this competitiveness. Right. Why didn't they fund my organization, the good work I'm doing, the good work my team's doing? But instead, yeah, it, it it adds this competitive layer. So when we shift this community-centric model, that also means that nonprofits are mutually supportive. I know we talked about this in our, um, our episode where we talked about some of the BLM funding 
that happened. So when we saw so much funding drastically shift and go to these really small grassroots organizations, and some of them were saying, we, we don't have a way to utilize this. And so they were essentially regranting it out to other nonprofits. That's amazing. And from this place of abundance, but that's the kind of thinking we need all the time. Right. Not just because you suddenly got $40 million overnight, but hey, my, my partner organization down the street is struggling I'm going to split this grant between the two of us because we we rely on each other in our community. Yes, absolutely. And how many boards would actually approve something like that? <laughs> sure. And you know, I I can't help. I'm going to make a a little admission here that I remember a few years ago grant applications were calling for this type of collaboration and they called it um, community impact or collective impact, collective collective impact. And I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. Um, I understood what they were trying to do, but what they were now doing was it felt like they were creating more work, right? Like, like we're, (laughs) no, they legitimately (laughs) were. were. So not only do we have this, you know, ridiculous grant application, but now we need you to work with these three other organizations and put the grant application together and all figure out who's going to do which part of it and how you're going to measure the impact collectively of the group of organizations. And it was just too much. I mean, we couldn't do it. And yet I see where they were going with it it's just the way they tried to administer it um it was too much well and i mean that's where we would get into trust-based philanthropy being one of the philanthropic answers to their structures so instead of them asking you to come together in this collective application which i'm sure required collective outcomes collective data tracking all of that instead you would say hey Here's the work the four of us are doing. Here's how it's helping our community at large. Fund it. Right. And they would. <laughs> right. So, I, yes, fundraising needs to shift, but I'm, how many times have we said philanthropy needs to as well? Absolutely. One of the other key tenets we see in, donor, or in community-centric fundraising is that you're starting – not you're starting. You are valuing time at the same level as money. And I know we've talked about this before, too, but it really is a core tenant of community-centric fundraising. So when we're looking at how we're engaging with donors, we are doing the same with our volunteers. It means that we're not putting our highest donor on a pedestal and giving them additional access to everything. It, It really is flattened out, which means it calls for a real level of transparency with donors that a lot of nonprofits are not comfortable with. Yes, But if we're asking for donor transparency, we need nonprofit transparency at the same time. Well, I feel like you made such a good point earlier when you talked about training donors. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what we start to run into. I mean, we've trained donors that they're going to receive these special perks if they give at a certain level. Yeah. And so to all of a sudden reverse that Mm -hmm. feels like now we're taking something away from them. Absolutely. And that's why it's hard for organizations to just fully adopt community-centric fundraising, you know, on a whim, you know, let's just change it all because um, they're afraid they're going to upset their donors. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and the other big thing I hear in terms of uh, concerns about shifting is we know what we can raise with the current model. We don't know what community-centric fundraising is going to bring us in. And so the potential to lose money is a big enough fear. And again, I totally hear that and I understand that. And donor-centric fundraising is, it ends up being very transactional. It ends up devaluing your organization, your clients, and your community. So if you shift to community-centric fundraising with with equity at the very center of it all, I mean, I, I think that is the most critical thing. None of this other stuff that we're talking about like the, these changes work unless equity is genuinely at the center and social justice is a goal above all else. When you put equity at the center, fundraising works differently, but it works better because you're right. not perpetuating harms at the same time that you're raising dollars. And it doesn't have to happen in a day. Right. I mean, if if community-centric fundraising is ideally where you want to go to, then start making little shifts mm-hmm. and plan it out over a five-year time span or three-year time span. I get it that somebody's not just going to say, okay, we won't do our gala and we won't do this kind of thing and we won't do this kind of thing and just change their entire fundraising model on a dime. But again, I think that there are little places that you can tweak and you can start talking to your board about and you can start instilling kind of those values throughout so that you can build on it and start to make that shift. I'm going to push back a little bit on the time horizon uh, because I think three to five years is way too long. Um, And I also think we have this moment right now where people are – People are understanding and looking for changes. And so this also provides us an opportunity to roll that out. I agree. It needs to be done thoughtfully. Like, if if you don't have conversations about equity happening in your organization to begin with, bringing it into fundraising isn't going to work. Um, but somebody said this recently. Uh, they said, racial justice progress goes at the speed of white comfort. And totally fucked up (laughs) it's totally fucked up and it's totally true like I hear you I yeah sure I would love it to happen quicker than three to five years but I think of my own organization and there's no fucking way yeah like there's no way because more often than not it's probably the fundraiser who's hearing about this right and can you imagine them coming and talking to their leadership and then talking to the board and trying to get buy-in and then trying to educate them on that and then making that be a cultural shift for the organization. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also for it to be truly transformational in in the shift of how you're doing fundraising, it does require bringing in your stakeholders, your donors, and, and having really open and honest conversations. And that never happens overnight. So I agree to some extent that, yes, it needs to be thoughtful and deliberate um, and, and really look at the, the principles within community-centric fundraising. Like they even say, this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Some principles will easily instill, some will not. But you're right, there are probably little tweaks. And there might even be things that organizations are already doing that they don't even realize in this context. Um, I, I'm thinking back to a board retreat I did probably last summer. And I was presenting this as kind of like a new option for them to consider. 
And immediately the board was like, whoa, 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 whoa. But then as the ED started talking through it, it was like, oh, actually, we're already doing many of these things and we're doing them well. And our folks respond. Yeah, we still have some big questions that need to be raised, but it's not the like massive overhaul. We're not throwing out everything we've ever done. It's it's often just kind of adding this robustness um, and shifting our language in really important ways. Absolutely. So you brought up um, the part of community-centric fundraising around working collaboratively and holistically with the other organizations in your community for the better and greater good of the community. Um, but what are some of the other tenants that you were talking about? Um, well, I'll make sure I include a link to the 10 principles in the show notes so folks can read them. Um, but again, a, a lot of them are just very equity-based. Like, we foster a sense of belonging, not othering. It's a really important thing, and a lot of organizations are, I think, struggling with that, um, especially outside of their immediate circles. Yeah. Like, they know how to bring people in that far, but beyond that it is really difficult. Um, and we see a lot of othering in fundraising language. You know, you, you put this child... Uh, in a story that feels so distant and distinct from what your donors have experienced to get that shock value. Right. But if that child, if the parent of that child read that, it would feel really shitty to them. Right. So the othering is done sometimes to our clients in a fundraising context. It can be done to other community members. And so shifting to a sense of belonging means how how can anybody show up in our organization and have a real place and have a real voice? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other things, we recognize that healing and liberation requires a commitment to economic justice. So uh, that also means you're going to have to look at your pay structures. Right. Oh, that's a scary one, huh? Looking at how you're compensating folks. Yeah, I really heard your Michigan come out there. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Which, you know, um, I was just talking to a friend the other day who, because of the Equal Pay Act mm-hmm. that passed here in Colorado in January, right? Um, the organization that she works for did a whole internal audit of their pay structure. Mm-hmm. And she ended up being one of the people that was being in the organization that was being like grossly underpaid. Mm-hmm. She didn't even realize it. And so now they have um, brought everybody up to an equitable level. And I thought, well, there you go. Like that's, that's even, it's sad that it kind of took this to make that happen, yeah. but it, it's at least now forcing organizations to do that and companies to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we probably have a whole episode on pay equity Uh to come because that's such a big thing. But I I think more than anything, that just shows like these 10 principles, which are in a fundraising context, go beyond fundraising. Absolutely. It's about transforming your organization and community. And fundraising just needs to be – fundraising is the piece that we have for too long forgotten as part of that conversation. And now we really, really need to make the shifts. Yep. So there's the big comparison, donor-centric fundraising, community-centric fundraising. Uh, Like I said, we'll include um, 
links to CCF info in the show notes. Um, I want to be really clear that community-centric fundraising is a BIPOC-led coalition. Um, It has centered the voices of people of color um, and marginalized people in amazing ways since their existence. They've got a great blog. They've got great social media. The Ethical Rainmaker, which is a podcast we've referenced, is hosted by one of the co-founders of CCF. So, um, if, if so this is many great resources, yeah, if this is something you're interested in, they have been developing so many tools that you can use and make it a bit more concrete than even this conversation. I love their blog. I love that they, yeah. um, you know, have contributors from all over the country that they pull in and give different perspectives. And I just, it's yeah. Great resource. Yeah. It's one of the first places I go now. When I'm like, I wonder who's talking about this. I bet CCF is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that brings us to the big controversy. Yeah. You've been on top of it. And you said it kind of flared again this weekend, huh? Yeah. So um, I, I don't want to go too in-depth because I could just have an entire episode of me going into all the drama around it, and that's not helpful. But many of our listeners may have heard of the fundraising consultant, especially fundraising communication consultant, Tom Ahern. Um, he is very well known in nonprofits um, to the extent that even some um, CRMs will have an Ahern audit so that you are running your fundraising communications through his audit of donor-centric fundraising. Um, he is really well known for doing trainings in which he actively dismantles your appeal live and tells you all the shit that's wrong with it. Um, And he's certainly made a name for himself. I I feel like I went to one of his training years ago and um, was really just put off by his tone. Mm -hmm. Like the way he was pulling apart this fundraising letter, this appeal that somebody had brought in. It was super condescending. And so I really haven't followed him since. And then in mid-March... Until... (laughs) shit flared. So um, this is all happening on Twitter primarily. I've seen it on a few other platforms, but Twitter is the main space if you want to go and see it. Basically, he was doing a training um, hosted by a local AFP chapter, Association of Fundraising Professionals, explaining why CCF was not going to work and donor-centric fundraising was the model. In his promos, and this this is not the promo that the AFP chapter put out. I want to be clear. This is his personal promos on his Twitter, on his blog. Um, he was calling out CCF in really um, awful ways and having active arguments with people of color in his Twitter feed about it. And then all this shit started surfacing going back years. Um, like when somebody had called out a conference last summer about how all their fundraising experts were white men. His response was basically like, well, we are the experts. Where are the women? I don't know, but they're not experts in fundraising. Yikes. Yikes. So he gets called out. And for days this goes on. Um, And he's got people of color, um, co-conspirators with people of color being like, stop it, stop it, stop it. He keeps dumbling it down, continuing to post the same rhetoric. And then what he does is he posts um, these screenshots and says – Here's what everybody is so concerned about, um, just dripping with sarcasm, but he has actually doctored the original photos. As if we don't have the fucking receipts. Wait, and so now he, the original photos of what? That he was using for promo. Oh. 
So like one of the things he had said, he had posted up was this comment from somebody where she was basically saying that traditional fundraising makes her uncomfortable and she doesn't feel like it's equitable. And he calls her a fundraiser wannabe, a novice, a newbie. Well, in his reposted photo, he says something like, um, oh gosh, I can't remember now, but um, an up and coming fundraiser. Like he just softens all the language and is like, why, why do you have problems with this? And we're like, well, first off, that's not actually what you said. And secondly, we still have problems with it. So he keeps doubling down. He goes quiet for a few days and then posts an apology. A few part, you know, tweet thread. I'm sorry. I couldn't see past myself. I'm going to do better. A lot of people were like, "Mm, are you though? And how long ago was that? I want to say this was like two weeks ago. Okay. I wish I had the exact dates, but I don't. Uh, Mostly because what happened next is he went off Twitter. He took down his account. So it's gone. Okay. Unless people took screenshots of everything and saved them, it's gone. But now, in the last few days, he has released um, in his blog this uh, upcoming book that he's going to write. Uh, He says he doesn't have a title, but the subtitle for it is How Some Careless Words on Social Media Burned Down My International Career. (laughs) But it continues. I'm sorry. This is the first time I heard of this, and this is hysterical. (laughs) How Some Careless Words on Social Media Burned Down My International Career, dot, 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 and the surprising good that came next once institutions and the sane rediscovered their core values shut up and he signs off see you on the other side this is the long game oh my god i have so many words and yet no words that is the most ridiculous toddler temper tantrum i have ever heard from a grown man outside of politics it is white old man fragility at its best. Holy cow. I also really don't love the sane reference. Like throwing mental illness in there so cavalierly. I mean, it's just, it's another form of ableism amongst it all. Um, or, I mean, that's a really fucking long subtitle. <laughs> It's going to have to be a coffee table book just to fit it all on. <laughs> what are the dimensions of this book? <laughs> but what, what's been really interesting since this latest piece has come out, um, and I think this happened over the weekend, um, so this is all pretty fresh. Um, he's got the same people coming out saying, like, fuck you, this is awful. Uh, stop. Just stop. Right. But then what I've... I've found really interesting is the number of white women specifically either coming to his defense or diminishing what he has done. But you just said that he was um, like a misogynist, that he was never, he's not pro-women anyway. So why are they defending him? It's the classic. Like why, why did white women stand with Trump? Right. Because they did. So, it's been really interesting and seeing, um, again, I, like real co-conspirators coming out and saying, like, this is bullshit. Take him off your list. Make sure he's not in your reference guides. 
Um, I saw people like reaching out to their grad schools to say like, pull his books. I like true canceling. Right. Trying to get Which him I'm out. I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, here we go. This is just another example of cancel culture. Which, oh God, cancel culture like that. Uh. <laughs> An episode in and of itself, except to say, some people fucking deserve to be canceled. Yeah. This man has an international platform. We know his underlying beliefs are racist and sexist and bigoted. Fucking cancel his ass. He should not be teaching the young novice fundraisers jack all. Well, and what I, I, yeah, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I get it that his entire career has been based on this philosophy, which is now being questioned, mm-hmm. right? Right. But instead of getting defensive, maybe hear it out. And maybe you don't right. agree with 100% of it, but maybe there's actually some truths in there that you could see and pull through. Yeah. And instead, he decided to take this stance of like, I mean, he kind of canceled first of like, you know, CCF, fuck that. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. This is just, you know, a phase and the whole, like, I'll see you on the other side. Like, it's never going to last and it's never going to work and people are going to realize that. Um, It's just uh, so degrading. Yeah. To those who are really curious in the drama of it all, I do want to say the AFP chapter that was hosting him canceled that session, I think within 48 hours of things really hitting the fan, um, AFP Global ha- has come out publicly and they haven't referenced this situation, but have said we promote fundraising in its various forms. And that includes new and rising methods of fundraising. Um, and there have been people who have more specifically explicitly stated what he's doing is wrong. There have been ethics complaints against him to AFP Global as well. So there are some people making big shifts um, and trying to do the right thing. But I I think, like, to your point on all of this, um, this isn't the last of it. Right. Like, he, he is one example, and we will continue to hear this fight for years, probably. For sure. And, and that's also part of what um, I think is really important about those adopting CCF is that it, this, that is truly the long game. <laughs> that is truly the that way fundraising. W- my, right. Yeah. Which was my earlier point. Like, I guess that's what I just, I don't want people to write off CCF because they're like, there's no way this is going to happen or be implemented tomorrow, you know? But like, that is the future of fundraising. We have to move in that direction. It's not sustainable any other way. Um, And it's not who we want to be. I mean, at the end of the day. I'm going to also include a link to this article. It was just released yesterday, April 11th, by Liz LeClaire, who um, is my new hero. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with Liz LeClaire, she's a a big fundraiser um, in Canada, I think specifically Nova Scotia. And um, she has been leading the charge against sexual assault and harassment against fundraisers. But she was one of the biggest voices in all of this and actually posted this um, blog post yesterday saying it is the sea change in fundraising. Mm -hmm. 
we're seeing people enter into fundraising and asking these fundamental questions that long-term fundraisers haven't asked themselves. And we have to open up and accept it. Otherwise, we are going to be losing fundraisers. Like, that's the other tie-in for all of this. We've been talking about the scarcity of fundraisers. If the fundraising profession isn't going to change, isn't going to shift into a more equity-based space, we will not have fundraisers left. Yeah. 100%. 100%. hern or Ahern? I think it's Ahern. I, I looked up some YouTube videos, but then I didn't want to give them any more hits, so I stopped. <laughs> You're so funny. Um, do you happen to know what his fundraising background is in? Is it in, like, higher ed? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I, I've seen him all over doing everything for ever. So I, I, mean, I don't know before, where he actually cut his teeth. Yeah. yeah, that's where I'm curious is, like, before he got into the consulting side of things. Don't know. Yeah. Also don't care. <laughs> Truth. I guess it doesn't really matter, but. I feel like our parting words of wisdom need to be twofold. One, white folks up there listening to this, call this shit out. Yeah. Like, stop being complicit. Every single white woman who jumped in to defend this man, you are just as bad as he is, if not worse. Because you've seen now the complaints that he couldn't even read, and yet you're continuing to defend him. And I think this goes throughout our lives. Secondly, if you're feeling icky about how you're doing fundraising, look into CCF. Yes. That might be the solution. And share it. Yeah. Share it within your organization. I mean, we talk about building a culture of philanthropy. Well, what kind of philanthropy do we want? What kind of culture do we want? And... um. It's an opportunity to share these resources with your leadership, even with program staff. Because just yeah. like we talked about, it it infiltrates what CCF is really outlining, infiltrates all parts of the organization. Absolutely. When it's 100% implemented. Yep. And if you are already doing CCF, or trying it out. We would love to hear how it's going. Yes. What What are these conversations like? Yeah. When you talk to um, your leadership, um, or if you are leadership, when you talk to your board, you know, like, what are, what are people's reactions to it? And if you're still testing the waters, we will share resources here. There's also a CCF Slack channel. Um, lots of great resources being shared there and even regional ones like we've got a Denver meetup group that's talking about CCF just in the metro Denver area so um, there are lots of resources and supports for those who are engaging in a more equitable way to fundraise and if you're in a position where you're listening to this and you're like yep I am 100% in this totally makes sense to me this is the type of fundraiser I want to be and I'm not in a position where I can share this information because nobody's going to hear it or I um, am scared or I just know that they're not going to adopt it. Um, you know, just keep educating yourself because careers are long and twisty and windy sometimes and you never know where you might end up or might get a chance to work where you can really lead something. So... You can email us your stories of shifting to CCF or 
if you are on fundraising Twitter and you've been watching this drama, would love to know that as well. We are at nonprofitreframe at gmail.com and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to support your local nonprofits by giving and giving generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.